It's always Halloween, and I'm always your haunted host, Luce Tomlin Brenner. Welcome, listener. You have reached the fifth and final episode in our chapter on the origins of skulls and skeletons as symbols of Halloween. If this is your first time joining us, I encourage you to go back to the beginning and listen to the first episode of this chapter, Skeletons, Human Sacrifice. We began our journey, where we often do, with the ancient Celts. Then we tracked our morbid fascination through the Dark Ages to the Black Plague, which inspired the first artistic renderings of skeletons. Then we explored how these frightening bones morphed into memento mores and became the height of fashion and design for the early modern period's upper classes. We left off last time at the turn of the 20th century, and today I hope to bring you to the present-ish. A series of interviews conducted in the early 1980s revealed that many Halloween revelers view it as the, quote, least commercialized and most participatory major holiday. The least commercialized part seems instinctively false to me now, 40 years later, as Americans spent approximately $8 billion on Halloween in 2020, and that was during a pandemic. But the most participatory part highlights exactly what I think we all love and cherish about Halloween. There are so many factors that contributed to the cosmic jump from the high art of memento mori skeletons to the fun, kitschy paper skeletons that adorn our homes today. So I want to use this idea of Halloween being both uncommercialized and participatory as a guide while we broadly explore the advent of modern Halloween decor. Let's start by addressing Halloween's inherently participatory community nature which sets it apart from the other major American holidays. As we discussed on the earliest episodes of this podcast, Halloween is derived from Samhain, which is a harvest festival and a New Year celebration. The Samhain celebration and all the inspired harvest festivals that came after it required the community as a whole to work together And this early focus set the stage for the version of Halloween that delights us today. For most of us, Halloween is the rare, maybe only, holiday that is centered on engaging with one's direct community, like your neighborhood, city, or school, as well as one's indirect community, like the closest rural area or countryside. Unlike Christmas or Thanksgiving, which are centered around a more private familial experience, 
Halloween encourages us to interact with those outside in the world through trick-or-treating, parades, parties, and decorating. The way we decorate for Halloween is unique in that we are creating a welcoming, albeit ghoulish, environment for our community, friends, and strangers alike. Beware, for the phone that you are calling will lead to certain destruction. Until the end of the 19th century, most American Halloween or harvest festivals were celebrated rurally and had an aesthetic to match, which was often reminiscent of early Celtic imagery, including apples, gourds, corn, hay bales, scarecrows, and even animal bones. However, these objects of nature were in stark contrast to the ornate skull jewelry, architecture, and paintings that characterized Europe's early modern obsession with death. 18th century nobles and salt-of-the-earth farmers couldn't be more different from each other, yet we see the magic of our modern Halloween when we combine these two styles. After all, throughout this podcast, we've discovered that the themes and imagery of Halloween have always been popular with people regardless of their background. But how did this glorious convergence of pseudo-intellectual extravagance and traditional farming customs occur? We can thank two major innovators, the Denison Manufacturing Company and the Bystel Company. Both of these companies were able to capitalize on the recent innovations of the Industrial Revolution to make their products in larger quantities and more affordable to a wider clientele. The Denison Manufacturing Company was founded in 1844 in Brunswick, Maine, and initially produced jewelry boxes. In 1897, the company moved to Farmington, Massachusetts, and quickly grew to employ nearly one-third of the town's residents. Once in Farmington, Denison continued to produce jewelry boxes in addition to tags on crinkly crepe paper. But in 1909, the company recognized the growing popularity of Halloween. In past episodes, we've discussed the fortune-telling games that young Victorian women played at their Halloween parties to discover who they might marry. And Denison recognized the potential gold mine these games and gatherings represented. With this discovery, Denison began producing holiday decorations aimed at the extravagant upper middle class that had been created by the Industrial Revolution. In 1912, Denison expanded on their early successes and began issuing their now famous annual bogey books, which would give readers an easy guide to throwing a successful Halloween party for adults. They included menus, themed party games, and countless decoration ideas, all which could be supplied by Denison for an additional fee. Denison was essentially the young, upper-middle-class housewife's one-stop shop for Halloween party planning. One popular item was a six-section table decoration called Hobgoblinville, which Denison sold for the astoundingly high price of $2, which is at least $30 today especially wild when you consider part of Denison's clever capitalistic genius was that all of their decorations were paper 
made to be thrown away and repurchased the following year. Single-use items seem wholly normal now, but we have to remember that this is a huge departure from the value and permanence of expensive memento moris. Today, Denison's five-cent bogey books and cheap party decorations are a Halloween collector's white whale. An original book could go for hundreds of dollars now, and they're considered quite rare and special. But at the time, they were essentially just a way for Denison to market themselves and to market Halloween. Denison would go on to produce bogey books and Halloween decor until 1937, and they remained making tags and various other paper products after that. In 1990, they merged with the Avery Corporation, who makes the little white sticker labels you've probably used or at least have seen countless times. Now, we are going to hop back just a little bit in time to trace the largely parallel development of the Bystel Company, which was established by Martin Luther Bystel in the year 1900. Martin Luther Bystel was known as ML, and he began his career as a salesperson for the Pittsburgh Art Calendar Company, but was eager to take advantage of the opportunities that turn-of-the-century America had to offer. He saw his first chance to step into a new role after several hotel managers he sold calendars to complained to him about how frequently the hotel's plants needed to be watered. ML began thinking of ways to create synthetic plants using paper and eventually found the solution while on a work trip to Heidelberg, Germany. There, he discovered a honeycombing technique that would allow him to create three-dimensional synthetic plants for those irritated hotel managers. Shortly after arriving back home in Pittsburgh, ML officially founded the Bystel Company and began production out of his basement. Beginning with artificial plants, calendars, and wooden children's toys, the Bystel Company slowly expanded their catalog. Over the next few years, the company would rapidly expand and eventually relocate to Shippensburg, Pennsylvania. In 1910, Bystel imported the technology to produce the honeycombed paper, which had previously only been available in Europe and Asia, and they utilized it to make their patented honeycomb designs, which became a defining element of their brand. In 1921, they created their first honeycomb paper Halloween decorations that would make them famous and influence the way Americans decorated for the next 100 years. Denison led the way, Bystel had the staying power. They have provided a more genuine dedication to their products and their community by continuously producing affordable party goods and holiday decor. They've created over a thousand designs since their inception. If you went to an American public school in the last 60 years or so, chances are your elementary school teachers decorated their classrooms with Bystel. A far cry from the upper-crust Victorian parties that Denison was trying to cater to exclusively. Today, Bystel includes a large but incredibly tight-knit community of employees, several of whom are direct relatives of M.L. Bystel. 
They currently sell gorgeous reproductions of their original die-cut and honeycombed paper designs of black cats, scarecrows, witches, jack-o'-lanterns, and of course, skeletons. Oh, so many skulls and skeletons! They offer their 1929 skeleton tissue dancers that are authentically reproduced using the honeycomb tissue design that made Bystel so famous. You can get another 1920 design that I absolutely love because it totally embodies the imagery of this podcast so well. It depicts a hooded skeleton that is peeking out from behind a smiling grandfather clock with the following rhyme printed across it. At 12 o'clock on Halloween, many strange things can be seen. (laughs) Isn't that terrific? They also sell a 1966 guitar playing skeleton. You can get a pack of glow-in-the-dark neon skulls from 1973 They even offer reproductions of skeleton-shaped candy boxes and skull-adorned paper lanterns that were first sold in the 1930s. But most importantly, you can still get my favorite Halloween decoration, the most classic of all of them in my opinion. The skeletons with the jointed arms and legs that Beistel named the dancing skeletons, recalling, of course, the 14th century dance macabre. The original copy on the 1930s dancing skeleton package reads, The Dancing Skeleton, a Halloween fright producer, extremely hideous. I want to return to what Americans said they loved about Halloween in the 1980s. I think we can see that Halloween is far from the least commercialized holiday, but the early commercialization did help make it a truly open and participatory holiday, creating access to art, imagery, and games that were once only available to the wealthy elite. Through the popularization of Halloween decor, Halloween became a day that now allows everyone to honor the past, the dead, our agricultural roots, and celebrate the community we've created. Together, Denison and Beistel changed the way Americans viewed Halloween. They melded the urban with the rural, the high class with the low class, democratization through decoration. They left an indelible orange and black mark on American culture by mass-producing and distributing imagery and symbols we now recognize as icons of Halloween, like the Mighty Skeleton. Well, listener, we've reached the end of our chapter. That was our fifth and final episode on the history of skeletons and their connection to Halloween. If there's something specific you still want to learn about skeletons or Halloween in general, call in to the All Hallows Hotline at 802-532-DEAD or write me an e-mail at itsalwayshalloweenpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out on our Instagram page at It's Always Halloween Podcast. If you love Halloween, please subscribe on Patreon. Our current patrons, 
produced both history episodes this month. So thank you so much to the Patreon Ghoul Gang for everything that you do. You make it so that I have more time to create more material for you. If you would like to sign up and join the Ghoul Gang, you can find us at patreon.com slash it's always Halloween. Or you can support the podcast by buying It's Always Halloween merch on Redbubble. That link is in our show notes and in our Instagram as well. This episode of It's Always Halloween was performed by me, Luce Tomlin Brenner. It was co-researched and co-written by me and Isaac McDaniel. The editing, theme music, and sound design is by Pete Burns. Thanks, Pete. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at LTB Comedy and Pete at Mittenberries. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and write us a little review so that other like-minded ghouls can find us. We are also on the NPR One app, so subscribe there and tell Ira Glass how much you love us. Thank you so much for listening to It's Always Halloween, and come back next time. Unless you get too distracted decorating, then I don't blame you.